Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12, or those of a sensitive nature, should turn off now. Hi, and welcome to the Murder Tales podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and for each episode, I'm joined by the creator of the Murder Tales series of books and criminal historian H.N. Lloyd. As we know him, Lloydie. Hello. We seem to be having problems with microphones over the last couple of weeks. Yes, last time it was yours, this time it's mine. Yeah, yeah. So uh, apologies for the recent sound quality. We are kind of trying to sort that out. Obviously, you can tell by how rich my microphone sounds right now. I've got a new mic, so uh, we need to get you one sorted. Yes, yes. We'll have to see if we can get ourselves a Black Friday deal. Or a sponsor. Or a sponsor, yes. Yeah, if you want to sponsor the show and get Lloydie a new microphone and some headphones, that'd be really appreciative. So in the last episode, we focused around the Croydon poisonings and we decided at the end of the episode quite quickly, the genre or the phenomenon of poisonings is quite an interesting one to, to have a look at because there's so many different elements and dynamics and motives and it just call for its own episode itself. So, as we mentioned at the start of this series, we said we would start doing some special episodes which are focused more on the similarities and the psychology of specific type of murders. And obviously, if you go back to the start of the series, we did have a special on medical murderers. So this time, we are looking at poisonings. And Lloydie... I will obviously put a caveat in there. This does not include your cooking. There's nothing wrong with my cooking. I do a mean spag ball, although usually I do without the spag. I just do ball. How many times have you given yourself food poisoning in the last couple of years? I think it was three at the last count. No. Four. Four. So you now you can kind of see those uh, nice little invitations to tea around at your house. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll prefer to have takeout. Thank you. Just get on with it. <laughs> well, obviously, poisonings have gone on for hundreds of years. You know, the phenomena of royalty having to have food tasters so that they weren't poisoned. So it, it's been a way of getting rid of inconvenient people for centuries but it really kind of came into its own as a, as a way of getting um, rid of inconvenient spouses or, or to kind of inherit money during the Victorian age and that's where we, we, we'll start today and the first person I wanted to talk about was a man called William Palmer now, William Palmer was a man that Charles Dickens called the greatest villain that ever stood in the Old Bailey. And he's a man who really is quite an odious character. He, he's one of the 
killers in the annals of crime that, that, that I would least like to have met because he, he, he was a cold, calculating, horrid person. His poisoning career began in 1846 when he um, started to get an interest in the wife of a man called George Abley. And Palmer invited uh, Abley to a public house called the Lamb and Flag in a place called Little Haywood in Staffordshire. And they started to have a drinking competition. And after having this drinking competition, Abley fell seriously ill and he died. Now, nothing could be proved or, or placed at Palmer's door. However, I think later events do indicate that the Palmer probably did poison George Abley. Now, Palmer was a doctor, quite a disreputable doctor. He started off as a pharmacist assistant in Liverpool, and he was quickly fired from that job um for thieving but then he went on trained as a, a doctor and he moved to a little village in Staffordshire and he got a quite thriving practice now he eventually married but he started to run into financial difficulty and the main reason why he had financial difficulties was because he was an inveterate gambler and he wasted most of his money of the horses. So when he found out that his mother-in-law, a lady called Anne Thornton, had inherited £8,000 from her lover, he decided that he was going to get that money for himself. And Anne Thornton died in January of 1849, two weeks after coming to stay with the Palmers. William Palmer decided that he needed to, needed to get somebody else to sign a death certificate. And so he got another elderly doctor by the name of Dr. Banford to record the death as apoplexy. Apoplexy is basically what they, what today we would term a stroke. So basically the doctor said that she'd had a, had a stroke. Now, it's Palmer's next phase of killings that, that is the reason why I so dislike him and why he's gone down as one of the most malignant killers in the annals of crime. Between 1848 and 1854, Palmer and his wife had five children. However, four of those children all died and they all died in infancy. They all died after it was witnessed that Palmer had been letting them suck on his finger. So I think we can all agree, or all crime historians agree, that Palmer poisoned his own children and did it simply because he wants to live a more extravagant lifestyle, wants to have more money to spend on the horses, and effectively didn't want to spend that money on his own children. So not only is he bumping relatives off to benefit from financial inheritance, he's now bumping off his own children to save himself money yeah and then that led on to him poisoning his own wife in september 1854 
it's quite an underhand tactic anyway, but to do to kill off members of your own family in that particular manner and for that motive, it's quite a cold and callous method. Mm. Were there any red flags that this was in his nature? All the way through Palmer's life, he was a, a, a bit of a cad. Uh, as I said, when he was trained to be a pharmacist, he, he was sacked for thievery. There were there was the constant gambling. There was there were allegations that he was borrowing money off people, and then people that he borrowed money off would fall ill. So throughout Palmer's life, there were indications that he was poisoning anyone who he could fit from from removing. So I'll borrow money off them. I don't have to return that money if they're dead. But it's a huge step by to go from gambling and larceny to murder. So in his case, was there any signs that he was testing out this theory earlier on? Risks to other people's lives? Was it was there any violent outbursts or was this just completely new for him that he seemed seemed to be quite successful with? Being a doctor, I think Palmer was able to, to pick a method of killing people, which he believed would be quite under the radar. In every other area of his life, he was said to be quite quite the gentleman. There was no anger issues. There was no indications that he was abusive to his wife. So it seems, again, to have been that, that quite considered and methodical manner of, of killing somebody but then we've got that similarity of somebody who's in a position of respect and power abusing the position that they're in exactly and that's how palmer came a cropper so in 1855 he murdered another man now his name was john parsons cook and cook had just inherited twelve thousand pounds palmer was able to finagle his way into Cook's affections and basically get himself put in charge of Cook's affairs. He then invited Cook to the Raven public house where again they started to drink. Uh, As they were drinking Cook said that the gin was burning his throat and after finishing drinking with Palmer Cook was violently sick and he told two friends that he believed that Palmer had been Uh, to use his phrase, dosing him. Now, not long after that, Cook died. And he died after Palmer was seen administering pills to Cook. Now, when it came to the autopsy and the coroner's court, Palmer started to interfere and it drew attention to him. So during the autopsy, he turned up and he accidentally bumped into one of the doctors so that they spilt the contents of the stomach. And he then wrote a letter to the coroner stating that he would like a verdict of natural causes to be returned. And he included in the letter a £10 note. Now, the, the coroner was completely kind of incensed by this. And he told the coroner's jury what had happened. And that led the coroner's jury to believe that Palmer had poisoned Cook. Uh, they returned a verdict of willful murder against William Partner. 
uh, he was arrested, put on trial, and he was eventually executed. Which is obviously the result that that you would expect at that time. So a lot of similarities with the cases we've we've discussed so far the series. As in, one, we've got somebody who works in medicine. We've had people using their position to have medical records signed off in their favour. And somebody else who's actually murdered their loved ones. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously the, the, there's a there's quite a vein of similarity that we've had so far mm-hmm. in the other cases that you've you've come across. Is it the same type of vein again? Well, the next the next character I want to talk about is quite an interesting one. It's a chap who was called he was called Sarin Klosowski. However, he changed his name to George Chapman. Uh, so we'll, we'll just call him George Chapman as, as we go along here. Now, George Chapman was Polish. In Poland, he'd been an apprentice surgeon. And he came to England in around about February 1887. We can't be exactly sure when he arrived in England, but it was around about. Now, Chapman murdered three mistresses, a lady called Mary Isabella Spink, Bessie Taylor, and Maud Marsh. And he murdered them between 1897 and 1902. And he had a fairly similar method of, of, he had a fairly similar modus operandi in each case. He would seduce the lady, he would get them to enter into either a fake marriage or a bigamous marriage, and then after being married to them for some time, he would then uh, poison them uh, using tartar emetic. Tartar emetic is effectively uh, also called antimony. Now, it can be used to treat tropical diseases, so it can have some uh, healing properties. But its, its main property was as an emetic. Now, an emetic is a substance which causes you to vomit so you would take if you were ill back in the day they would give you irritant poisoning and it would force you to throw up what was that never making you feel ill so tartar emetic was was one of the things people would use to, to essentially detoxify yourself however if used in, in uh, large enough quantities or if used in a sustained way over a long period of time, they are quite fatal. Essentially, Chapman murdered these three ladies. The last death drew suspicion. It was felt, you know, it was, it was unusual that, that, that three wives dying with very broadly similar symptoms in such a short space of time, um, and people started to ask questions. So the body of Maud Marsh was autopsied, and it was discovered that she'd been poisoned using tartaromatic. And then Mary Isabella Spink was exhumed and Bessie Taylor exhumed. And they were all found uh, to have been poisoned. But what's the motive for him to, to murder his mistresses? Well, that's the, that's the interesting thing about George Chapman. There was no reason for them to murder them whatsoever. He didn't benefit from the death to any great extent. He made a small inheritance from uh, Mary Isabella Spink, but he didn't uh, gain it financially in any way for any of the deaths. Effectively, the, the murders were 
almost purely psychological and purely so that he could watch the women suffer. And this relates back to what we were saying in the Croydon case, was the reason why poison, poison is used as a method of murder is mm. one, because it's easy, easily accessible. Two, there is that kind of, with it being a loved one, it can be seen as being humane, or it can be the complete and utter opposite. You're seeing somebody suffer with the poison that you've administered. Exactly. There's a curious little coda to the George Chapman case. When George Chapman was executed, Frederick Aberline, who was the police officer who had greatly involved in the Jack the Ripper case, uh, contacted George Godley, who had apprehended Chapman, and he said to him, you've got Jack the Ripper at last. Do you know what? When you said George Chapman, I was thinking, I know that name, and now this rings a bell. Yeah. Now, most ripperologists, uh, as they're called, disagree with Frederick Abelard, uh, and they don't think that, that Chapman was Jack the Ripper. But it is interesting that one of the main officers involved in the Ripper investigation did think that Chapman was the killer. He was in the United Kingdom at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders, and he did kind of have a history of this sort of thing. He wasn't a very nice man, George Chapman. He was known to physically abuse his wives and his lovers, and at one time he had attacked one of them with a knife. Um, so th- there we go. That that's just a little uh, a little uh, side to the George Chapman case. Unfortunately, it sounds as though he's clutching at straws. It's kind of a bit like the guy who uh, who's made like a true crime career over accusing his father of being the Black Dahlia killer. When you listen to his story initially, it's like, mm, OK, it's plausible. But then you realise it's very much clutching at straws. Yeah, uh, Steve Adell, you talked about that. And actually, he, he's written several books now where he doesn't just accuse his dad of murdering the Black Dahlia. In his later books, he, he accuses him of also being the Zodiac killer. Which is a hell of a stretch of time to go yeah. from, from there to then. We've gone from somebody whose motive was to, to poison his victims for financial gain. Now we've got somebody who potentially has done it on the basis of watching watching his victims suffer over time. Where do we go from here? After the break, we'll come back with a case whereby we'll see how, when used effectively, you could possibly get away with murdering someone with poison. Okay, let's take a break. Welcome back. So this is a bit of a strange uh, a strange thing that you alluded to before the break, that you're now going to tell your listeners how to potentially get away with murder. Don't get me wrong, there's certain avenues of trying to sell your books, but maybe actually not teaching the listeners or your readers to potentially commit crimes and attempt to get away with them. Well, th- this next case is, is it's an interesting one because we know the victim was poisoned and there were strong suspects but like 
in the case we looked at in the last episode, they just couldn't prove who might have done it. So this case centers on a chap called Charles Bravo. Now he married a lady called Florence Ricardo. Now Florence Ricardo previously been married to a guy called Captain Alexander Ricardo. And upon his death in 1871, uh, Florence inherited 40,000 pounds, which was a heck of a lot of money back then. So Charles Bravo marries Florence thinking I'm set up for life here. But it wasn't a very happy marriage at all. He felt that Florence needlessly wasted money and it led to quite violent arguments between the pairs. Florence complained to her friends that that his meanness disgusted her. Florence was also having an affair with another man. He he was a man called Dr. James Manby Gull, and he was 37 years older than Florence, and he was a neighbour of theirs. Now, by April 1975, Florence and Charles, even though they'd only been married for a few months, were already sleeping in separate bedrooms. Now, this was partly because that Florence had suffered quite a painful miscarriage. This night, Florence goes to her bedchamber and she falls asleep. And she's woken up in the middle of the night by Charles Bravo shouting, Florence, Florence, hot water. Now, the reason why he wanted hot water was because he wanted to drink the hot water and force himself to be sick because he didn't feel well. And over the next several days... Over the next several days, Charles felt sicker and sicker, and he eventually died. Over that course of those six days, Charles was examined by no less than six doctors. And one of the doctors who examined him was the Queen's physician, Dr. William Gull, who rather purely linked him back to George Chapman. William Gull has also been a suspect for the Jack the Ripper murders. So when the autopsy was carried out on Charles Bravo, it was discovered that he'd been poisoned with tartar emetic. You'll find in a lot of these cases, the very same things are usually used. So it's tartar emetic or it's arsenic or it's strychnine or it's things like that. Poisons that were not very widely available, but you could certainly get in a chemist at the time. You would go into a chemist. Uh, and you would have to sign a poisons book and they would supply you with that poison. You're not really covering your tracks, though, are you? Because obviously you go into the chemist, they've got to dispense it. <laughs> so you, you're actually going into somewhere where you could potentially use it as a poison. Well, exactly. And that is kind of what saved Florence Bravo, because they could prove that not only had she not purchased any poisons, she hadn't prepared any meals for Charles Bravo because it was all done by the household staff. So because of that, there's actually two coroner's inquests into Charles Bravo's deaths and they both concluded that he had been murdered but they couldn't say who did it and because of that Florence Bravo was never arrested and was never brought to trial for his death. Who's realistically the killer in that case? I actually think it was a friend of Mrs. Bravo called Mrs. Cox. She was a kind of paid companion uh, to Florence Bravo, who Charles had had basically sacked and who Florence had had, had poured a heart out to Mrs. Cox and basically said how unhappy she was 
with, with Charles Bravo. So I think Mrs. Cox might have done the deed there. It certainly wasn't a happy ending uh, for Florence Bravo. Uh, she was desperately unhappy after Charles's death. And she actually ended up drinking herself to death within three years herself. Uh, and she died aged just 33. With a lot of these cases, can they ever be misinterpreted? Yeah. Now, that brings me on to a, a, a case which you might know about. It's the death of a man called James Maybrick. Now, James Maybrick was a Liverpool cotton merchant. He married a 19-year-old woman called Florence Maybrick. He was 42. And they met on board a ship crossing the Atlantic. So James Maybrick had been to see his cotton fields in America. And as he was returned to Liverpool, he met this 19-year-old uh, American girl and they fell head over heels in love. And the second they disembarked the boat, they went off and got married. Now, they moved to Liverpool and they set up home at a place called Battlecrease House in Egbeth, which still stands today. And they had two children, Bobo and Gladys. And James Maybrick was extremely successful. He was extremely rich. He was in business with a man called Alfred Briley. And what James may or may not have known is that Florence had started to have an affair with Alfred Briley. In April of 1889, Maybrick fell ill. And as he took to his sickbed, Florence Maybrick wrote a letter to Alfred Briley. The cook, Mrs. Yap, intercepted the letter. And you could see there essentially this was a love letter. So she gave it to James Maybrick's brother, Michael. And Michael, reading the letter, became incensed. And he essentially placed Florence under house arrest and locked her in a bedroom. A few days later, James Maybrick died. And when the autopsy was carried out, it turned out he was chopped to the gills with arsenic. And when they started to examine some of the things in the house, they found that there was a bottle of meat juice which James Maybrick had been taking to build up his strength, and that was laced with arsenic. And it was suggested that Florence Maybrick had soaked fly papers in water. She was able to draw out the arsenic, which she could then put into James Maybrick's meat juice. Yes. He's another Jack the Ripper suspect. Yes, there was a diary found in the 1990s in Liverpool which it was purported to be the diary of Jack the Ripper. And when they investigated this, all indications were it was written by James Maybrick. Not only that, in more recent years, James Maybrick's brother, Michael Maybrick, has also become a Ripper suspect himself. On what basis? Is the fact that they used to wear black coats, have a, a big bushy beard and moustache and wear a top hat? Because whenever you look into the evidence of this, it is... Very, very slim. Bruce Robinson, who is probably best known for directing the wonderful movie With Nell and I, spent 15 years of his life researching the Jack the Ripper murders. And he produced a book called We All Love Jack. It's an absolute doorstopper of a book. The audio version goes on for over 30 hours. And in that, he, he kind of details why he believes it was it was Michael Maybrick. We're not doing Jack the Ripper yet. I know, I know we're not, but you did ask. Okay, so you alluded to this being a case where the evidence was misinterpreted. So how was it here? Well, effectively, James Maybrick was a hypochondriac. 
and he also had several mistresses. And a lot of the medications he took for his various ailments included arsenic. And he also took arsenic as an aphrodisiac, because if taken in small enough quantities, it does cause sexual arousal arsenic. However, he was taking it in such massive quantities, it's now widely believed that he poisoned himself. Now, when Florence Maybrick came up for trial at St George's Hall in Liverpool, it was a rather peculiar trial because everything seemed to be going in her favour. And the judge, James Fitzjames Stevenson, started to sum up quite favourably in Florence Maybrick's favour. The problem was James Fitzjames Stevenson had the early onset signs of dementia. And halfway through his summing up, he was found pacing his rooms, just repeating to himself, that woman's guilty, that woman's guilty. And the next day, instead of summing up quite favourably, as he had been for quite some time, it turned into a direct character assassination. And the jury eventually returned a verdict of guilty against Fonz Maybrick. Now, this verdict was so controversial, it caused near riots in Liverpool. The, the judge was almost attacked as he left St George's Hall. And the authorities realised it would be deeply unpopular to hang Florence Maybrook. And so it was one of the very first cases where they almost interfered in the case by effectively overturning the verdict, but doing it in such a way whereby they could still send Florence Maybrook to prison. So she ended up being given a life sentence, almost on the grounds that she'd accidentally poisoned her husband. And she ended up spending the next um, 14 years of her life in prison doing hard labour. Most famous UK poisoning case, that of Marianne Cotton. Yeah, Marianne Cotton. Now, she was executed for poisoning her stepson, although it's believed that she did actually murder between 11 and 13 of her children and possibly four husbands. And the reason why it's believed that she did it was to collect insurance money. Given the complexity, though, of that case, I think Mary Ann Cotton deserves an episode of her own. So instead, there is a, a similar case which we can talk about. Now, this is the case of Catherine Flanagan and Margaret Higgins. It's another Liverpool case. and Flanagan and Higgins were known as the Black Widows of Liverpool or the Borgers of the Slums. Now, they ran a boarding house at number five Skirving Street in Liverpool. And in 1880, one of their lodgers, a man called John Flanagan, died very suddenly at the age of 22. He'd been previously healthy, had no health problems whatsoever. And when he died, the two sisters, Catherine and Margaret, collected £71 insurance money. Now, that would roughly be about £8,000 a day. Two years later, in 1882, Margaret married a man called Thomas Higgins. And shortly after getting married, Thomas's daughter, a little girl called Mary, who's only eight, died after a short illness. Again, the sisters had insured the little girl's life 
and they collected the money. Then another boarder died, a lady called Margaret Jennings. She was only 19. And again, they'd insured Margaret's life and they collected the money. In 1883, Thomas Higgins himself died. He had been insured by five different insurance companies. And so the sisters pocketed about £100, so around about £10,000 today. Uh, when Thomas's brother found out that he'd been insured by five different insurance companies, he started to kick up a bit of fuss about it. So all of a sudden, all of the bodies of these dead people who died over the past couple of years were dug up. And it was found that they'd each been murdered using arsenic. Now, when uh, Catherine Flanagan and Margaret Higgins were taken in for questioning, they told the police a rather remarkable story. And they said that they were essentially part of an organisation which for several years had been murdering local people so that family members could collect the insurance money. Murdering essentially. And they said that there were several other people involved in the conspiracy. There was a lady called Margaret Evans, Bridget Begley and Margaret Higgins, who had been the poisoners. The insurance companies were in on it. And there was a lady called Margaret Potter, a Mrs. Fallon and a Bridget Stanton, who were paid off to basically let the insurance claims go through, no, no questions asked and a lady called Catherine Ryan who had been obtaining the poisonings on their behalf. Now, for whatever reason, the police didn't follow this up. I think they were probably worried that they were kicking up too much of a hornet's nest. And so they quietly filed away that confession and just allowed the women to plead guilty, knowing that nothing would really come out at a trial because they were going to plead guilty. And then they were executed at Kirkdale Prison in 1884. The fact that it became a formalised method shows there's a, a bit of the victims were the victims of entrepreneurs, in effect. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could say that those sisters were psychopathic or psychotic in any way. However, they, they were a product of the, the times, really, where there was poverty, there was no welfare state to fall back on. If you were poor and you had relatives who effectively couldn't pay their own way you were lumbered with them and a lot of people would have probably been looking for, for ways to get rid of these useless relatives for want of a better word and so them coming up with a with a with a an almost what seemed foolproof method to not only get rid of a, an extra amount to feed but also to have some financial security as a result it, it was kind of quite the entrepreneurial feat. There's, there's kind of a similarity there with Burke and her, as in they realised that this is the easiest way for them to make money. Instead of stealing bodies and digging them up, to actually murder people and sell their bodies to the universities. Yeah, finding a loophole in the system and basically exploiting it for your own personal end. So we, we've kind of transitioned over a few different cases there and the similarity with most of these is financial gain mm -hmm. so yeah an interesting case to finish off on we will come back and do marianne cotton in the near future 
but we've definitely traversed across quite a few cases in this episode of the differences and similarities between between poisonous. We'll come back and obviously look at some different themes in the future. But for now, I think we need to wrap up. So, so if you have any questions, concerns, or any feedback at all, you can get in contact with us on our X account, which is at Murder Tales Pod, or you can get in contact with Lordy directly, which is at Lloyd one And if you'd like to read up on any more of these cases, you can go to Amazon and uh, you can pick up a copy of my book, uh, Murder Tales, The Poisonous. There's loads of different books out there on, 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 this, on this subject and the cases that we've discussed tonight. Great. So all that leaves me to say is I've been Chris Britton and he's been H.N. Lloyd. Evening all. If you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Murder Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by H.N. Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Britton, who's created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.